Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to And The Writer Is with Ross Golan. There are millions of singers, thousands of artists, and only 40 songs per genre at a time. These are the stories of the hottest creatives, the most venerable legends, artists, songwriters, executives, and more. Come join our Discord, follow our socials, and share your music with the And The Writer Is community. We'll see you all there, and now, here's this week's episode. Hey, what's up? It's Paige McDonald, and this is your weekly music industry update. Warner Chapel and Kevin Hart's media company, Heartbeat, have joined in an exclusive music publishing partnership. Universal Music Group has been named an exclusive launch partner for an AI-driven music app called Vera that assists dementia patients. Ashley Calhoun has been promoted to president of Pulse Music Group. Becky G is giving away $500,000 worth of Bitcoin to fans. Spotify projects reaching 1 billion users by 2030. Sara Larson has bought back her entire recording catalog and is launching a new label called Sommer House. The music funding platform Beatbread has finalized its biggest deal to date with singer-songwriter Ellie Douay. Another Block, which is a Web3 platform that lets fans invest in music by buying NFTs, has raised $2.5 million in a new round of funding. Robbie Hoffman has joined Primary Wave's talent management division. The music tech startup IndieFlow has raised $4 million in new funding. SongTrader has acquired AI metadata and music search company MusicCube. The distributor TuneCore has overhauled the current pricing system in exchange for a single annual fee. Virgin Music has launched a label and artist services division in Africa. Primary Wave has acquired a piece in the music publishing catalog of Julian Casablanca's, the lead singer of rock band The Strokes. Live Nation has expanded its Latin touring team with four new hires. Jennifer Caserta has been named Head of People at SoundCloud. Wasserman Music has promoted five longtime London-based employees to agents, including Laura Brown, Cecilia Chan, Susie Melke, Lucy Putman, and Holly Rowland. Decca Records has signed Jung Jae-il, the South Korean composer behind the Parasite and Squid Game soundtracks, and many more. A big thank you to Hannah Rosenberg of Mega House for gathering today's news. Now stay tuned for this week's episode of And The Writer Is.
Guys, listen up. Uh, last year we started working with LAMP. It's, uh, it's a school called Los Angeles Academy for Artists and Music Production. Uh, it's run by and founded by Stargate. Their mentor list is nuts. It's you know Benny Blanco, Tommy Brown, Tanache, Emily Warren, John Cunningham. You know a bunch of people who've been guests on this show. So obviously we're fans of them, and this school has been amazing. And I wanted to bring them back this year so they can tell you an update on how Lamp is going and ways for you guys to get involved in Lamp. Um, Tor, hey. dude, good to catch up. It has been a very strange time in the last year, but you guys are still trucking through, and it's even growing and growing. So I, I just want you to tell everybody, you know, what's going on. How's how's the school going? Well, as you know, uh, uh, Ross, uh, Lamp is a one-year high-level music program. We're in Santa Monica, California, and we have a site uh, with forty-eight students. They collaborate, write music, produce. Every single day. And we started this last year. We're just graduating our first class and we're doing admissions for the next year now. And just the level of music that's coming out of this place is mind-blowing. We thought it was going to be hard to get people up to a professional level, uh, but people came in uh, with a growth mindset and uh, they're already at, at a professional level. So these guys are ready to go out because we create a real-world environment where it's just like being in a writing session. We pair producers with songwriters and artists, and we write songs every single day. Then we break them down once a week, focus on the songwriting, focus on the performance, the production, the beats. Are the beats hitting? Are the titles great? Are the melodies distinct? Is it memorable? What, what can we do to make it better? And that's the type of feedback you don't get in the industry, right? No, no one's ever going to tell you what you can do to your song to make it better. They just won't call you back. Uh, we, we have a program where it feels like the real world, but you get professional feedback from the best mentors in the game. I mean, I can't imagine if we would have had this when we were coming up, just the ability to not only meet some of the people that you have coming in, but the ability to actually get that feedback is priceless because it took most of us a lot of... Uh, not so good songs. To, <laughs> exactly. You know, I mean, to... when we started Lamp, it was you know the mission was what can we give to the next generation? That took us years to learn. What are the things that we wish we knew when we started out that we can tell people? Uh, so there's no formula, but there's definitely certain key principles that never change in storytelling, in melody, in song structure, and all these key things to take your song from good to great, which is what it's all about. You know, it's not about having a bunch of good songs. It's about having those few that are great. So tell me, if I'm a student and I come to Santa Monica to be at the school, what would a day look like for me? Well, typical day is that we have uh, mentors or workshop holders in the morning. We show up at 10 a.m. every day. Um, and then by 3 p.m., you're in the studio. You're ba- we have uh, 16 writer rooms where we have, you know, it's fully decked out with microphones and monitors and keyboards and everything. People bring their own, you bring your own laptop, and then you write songs and create music and try to make magic happen every day. That's uh, that's our day and that's our week. If I can't get to Santa Monica, is there any way for me to be to still learn from school? I, mean, I assume not every student comes to Santa Monica. Is there an online 
Yes, we have an online program which is uh, just as big as the, if not bigger than the on-site. Which is you get the same content. You get you get. We share all the uh, mentors. We share all the workshops. We put people in groups. So you you Zoom or you FaceTime in with your group that week. You create songs. You exchange files. We teach you how to record your own vocals if you don't know how to do that. We teach you how to exchange beats, text over music, uh, and then send that back and create a song by the end of the week. Deliver it on Friday and get feedback. Actually, you deliver it on Saturday now because some of the students have jobs, so we want to accommodate for that. Finish your song on Saturday, and the following week you get feedback from our listening panel. Awesome. So admissions open now. How would I apply? You only get in by going to lampmusic.com and sharing your music. You don't need a degree. You don't need uh, necessarily a formal education. You only need talent and the ambition and the will to get better. So go to lampmusic. That's L-A-A-M-P music.com. You share your music. We listen to your music and we reach out, set up an interview and uh, we'll take it from there. Tor, congratulations on on you know keeping this going. Uh, you know, I I just think you and Mikkel are were, have been mentors of mine in many ways, and uh, I've just I'm so envious of these kids that they get to do it. So congratulations. Thank you so much, Ross. All right, man. All right, take care. Welcome to And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. Today's rising star went from being the intern of former And The Writer Is Hall of Famer Benny Blanco to being named to Forbes 30 Under 30 list and Variety's Hitmakers of the Year with multiple number one smashes. You might recognize his name from the credits of Kid Leroy and Justin Bieber's hit Stay, which spent eight weeks at the top of the Hot 100 chart and the number one bullet mood by 24K Golden and Ian Dior, which also stayed for eight weeks, or did they both? I mean, I don't know. Lots of number ones for a long time. And if you still haven't heard his name yet, you will in two sentences from now. All the way from Los Angeles, this songwriter and producer is starting off this decade by defining it. And the writer is Blake Slacken. I think I'm, I'm going to take a clip of that and walk out of my shower to that every single morning. That was like the best intro ever. That was amazing. That, um, that is such an image. I actually think you should describe the sweater you're wearing right now because I mean, if you before like you've taken the shower and then you go and you're like, this is the sweater I'm going to put on. Well, it's funny that you where say did you that. get that? I I wish everyone could see this sweater because I love it so much, but it's given me the worst allergies all day because it's mohair and. I haven't taken it off because I have too much pride because I spent fucking 300 bucks on it and I feel like I need to get my use out of it. So even though it's giving me the worst allergies ever, it looks great and I feel I feel like I look great. I don't feel great. And it's going to stay on. Beauty's that pain. is... That, yeah, there's there's this economist thing. Like people talk about it with food where, you know, when you get... Um, uh, it's like when you order a really expensive meal, you feel like you need to finish it. Oh, I'm that all the time. I'm the guy that takes off every leftover from the table too. 
Yeah. Like, I'm the guy that's like, oh, are, are you going to finish that? And then, like, I'll take it home for the next day. Always. Were you, were you, were, are, like, is your family like that? Or were you? My, it's actually like- funny. My sister, that's literally her major in college, is, is food waste. So I definitely get it from my family. And I, I think I've just been bullied by my sister for so long that it's kind of ingrained into me. But, but here I am taking food home and wearing allergy sweaters. Do you now you go to probably more expensive restaurants than you used to go to? Do you um when you go to Sushi Park, do you uh do you take home leftover sushi? I'm I'm definitely eating every fucking bite of Sushi Park that they give me. Explain what Sushi Park is for the the listeners who don't know what Sushi Park is. Sushi Park is honestly my favorite restaurant in LA, I think. It's a kind of hole in the wall. There's not like the vibe is that there's no vibe, you know what? Like the the walls are this really ugly orange, and it's not like the best design thing you've ever seen. But it is the fucking best sushi. By the way, I'm allowed to curse, right? Yeah, you can. Curse. Okay, that's super important. It, it's just the best. Although, although there is one review on our iTunes, like one review, and I shouldn't say I read them, but every once in a while, I'm like, oh, I'm curious what people say. Most people are like, I like this show. It's a good thing for songwriters. Somebody gave us two stars and wrote on the thing, can't there be a clean version for the kids? Oh my God. Well, I have one message for that person, and that's fuck you. <laughs> hey, slam dunk. Oh sushi Park is the greatest. It's the best sushi in LA. It's offensively expensive, but 100% worth it for what you get. And you walk in there and you see Jay-Z and Beyonce in their pajamas. Or like fucking Steven Spielberg having dinner with like Jimi Hendrix or some dead person because like something like that would happen at Sushi Park. You know what I mean? Like it's that kind of place where it's it's a scene, but not really in a it's not a Soho house scene. That's what I'll say. Okay, so you were born in LA, so you're familiar with running into people. Um where in LA were you raised? And you know, tell me a little bit about your family. Was raised in Westwood. Uh my family I've I have the best family. I'm so lucky. My dad, from a very early age, was showing me great music and showing me the Beatles and you know everyone who I needed to hear. My mom forced me to take piano lessons, which I didn't love. And then I started playing guitar when I was ten. And and yeah, I've family. I, I've gotten super lucky with having the best parents, best siblings. Uh, just all around great influence. Um, older, younger siblings. What do you? Two have? younger siblings. I'm the oldest. One who's one who's 15 named Carrie. He's who I get all my. That's how I really know what's going on is from Carrie, and my sister is 21. She goes to Berkeley College. Do you feel a responsibility to? You know, as a, as the oldest sibling, do you feel a responsibility to lead the way, and do they feel you know having had such success already? Do they feel the need, um, you know, to compete with the success you've had? You know, I don't know if they feel the need to compete because I both I think they both would never go into music, but it's been interesting because. Any success I've had, or just my entire kind of music journey and evolution, has been literally right next to them. Like my studio that I'm sitting in right now is still 
at my house that my family's at. Like every one of those songs was made at my mom's house. So like my siblings know every artist I work with. They're like, you know, me me and Leroy took took Carrie out to Scooter one time, my little brother. You know what I mean? Like we've done that several times. Like we, everyone who I work with loves hanging out with my siblings. So they're really close to it. They've been fans of my music since it was horrible and they shouldn't have been fans of it, you know? Like they've always been the best cheerleaders. So I think I'm I think I'm a good influence work ethic wise cuz you know my my little brother can grow up seeing that when he wakes up the studio lights are on and when he goes to bed the studio lights are on you know so he knows that I'm working as hard as I possibly can but yeah I'd like to think I'm a good influence I haven't really thought about that well that's why I asked the question so you think about it can I also say I'm the biggest fan of this podcast like I've listened to it from the beginning I listened to so many episodes it was really like one of my favorite things, and I can't believe that you want to talk to me. Like it's just crazy that I'm on this to me. Well, I just love it. First of all, thank you, and second, I hope that that's the case, man. I I hope that when you know, I think people think that successful songwriters are no longer struggling, and I think in reality, all songwriters are struggling songwriters. You know what I mean? And that was sort of the whole purpose of the whole thing is when when you realize, you know, the first episode's Benny. So I was like, and part of that was because, you know, I got some of my first big cuts because of him. You know, it's like everyone is struggling and everyone is like, oh, everyone opens doors for each other even if you don't know them. That's, you know that's I mean? 100% true. And also, like, I think everyone who really who does well in this business is just a fan of of everyone and everything. Like when I when I first met Benny, he said he was like, "Have you seen all the videos of me? Have you seen all my interviews?" And I was just like, "It's so like of course, by the way." And second of all, like I have competitions with people I work with of like who's seen like oh you've seen this video of this producer at that time like oh you've seen this video of Timbaland showing this beat to this per-. like it's like. All I, I do, all I did as a kid was just look at every fucking piece of information I could find from any producer that I respected, even producers that I didn't respect and I didn't and I found and I got a respect for them. That's just how I like to spend my time. Like I'm just the biggest fan of music and people who make music ever. So of course I've you know, of course I would want to hear every and the writer is. Of course I would want to hear every podcast that's out of anyone. Like yeah, so I, I think I've loved this a lot because it was one of the first things that really gave like in-depth interviews with, with people who I really wanted to hear from. So if you're listening right now, I don't know why you want to hear from me, but thanks for hearing from me. Yeah, I love that. I feel like we should a- end right now because of how good that was. But, but we've got, we've, we're going to go back before that. We're going to rewind a little bit. What what makes you go from playing guitar at ten to actually writing songs? Mm, I I wanted to be a rock star, like playing, picking up guitar and and singing and all that. And I would play a bunch of cover songs. I started playing. I knew someone who worked at the Whiskey a Go Go when I was thirteen, and she offered me. She was like, "If you can sell fifty tickets, I'll give you." a show on a Friday night or something like that, obviously at like 5 p.m. or something like that. But 
I started doing that, and I would sell tickets to all my friends and my teachers, and I would just play cover songs, and and they were they were fun. I'm I'm sure I fucking I sucked, and I just play like cheesy covers, but I had the most fun doing that. And then I think at some point, I just got tired of playing other people's songs, and I wanted to play my write my own songs. Yeah, I mean, but that's a huge difference. I feel like what what's like the first song you're like, I'm. I'm trying to write this song and it's your own. Like, what's that? What was that song called? It's really hard. I don't know. I have a bunch of notebooks. I, I was one of the bad kids who aren't like, I would always hear people saying, you know, you have to finish songs, you have to finish songs. And for a long time, I would do starts of songs and then I would kind of just like throw them away. So I, I don't know what my first song was that I fully wrote, but. I remember one song called Next September that was like, everything will be better next September or something like that. Because I was like, summer going into the next school year. And I was like, people are going to like me next year. That girl's going to like me back next year. That, I think maybe that was the first one. I feel like most people who, you might be on this threshold where, and maybe it was your peers even, where their first instrument is a computer, not a guitar or a piano. You know, my like the 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 way people talk about music now. It feels like when I talk to most people who are, you know, in their mid early twenties, they're, um, you know, that when I ask like, what kind of music are you into, they're like house music, and the what kind of music do they like making? They're like house music, and part of it is because everyone has GarageBand and Ableton and. And logic on their computer, so they it's so easy compared to other genres to play. Why would you play guitar over making house music? That's a good question. I, I really I fell in love with production after guitar. I fell in like I had a good six years of playing guitar where I like wanted to be Hendrix and BB King and everyone, all the all the heroes, and then. I think I found out what a producer even was because I didn't even understand it. And I didn't understand that people, you could write songs and you didn't have to be the artist. And I found Benny and Max and Timbaland and Pharrell. The idea of being a part of all these different artists and all these different kinds of music and being able to walk down the street after, it was like the coolest thing ever to me. So that's when I picked up. But I started in Pro Tools because only because I would watch every video and I saw that a lot of my heroes were in Pro Tools. So I wasn't one of those Ableton kids. I'm still not an Ableton kid. I, I still, I should probably switch to something, but I've still just been in Pro Tools since I started. So it's weird. It already makes you sound older. Literally. And no, you're so it, it young. But by me. just saying, like, it, it makes you sound older to be like, oh, yeah, I, I still use Pro Tools. Just like, Puts you in a category as somebody who older and so much less cool. Also, it's like so much less sick than people who are amazing in FL or amazing in Ableton. But it's just what works for you. I, so I will weird. say like, I really like. We won't get into super nerd talk, but I like Pro Tools because it's harder to do everything, which means you have to think about everything a little bit more. It's harder to kind of throw stuff at the wall. You kind of have to think about what you need and what you want a little bit more than just doing a bunch of random stuff for no reason. So that's my. That's my ten seconds of nerd daw talk. Why not go further than that? Why, why, why hold back on the nerd talk? I don't know. I, if, I mean, I guess if that's an interesting thing, 
yeah, I, I, I like being purposeful and being as simple as possible. Is that something that was taught or something learned? I think definitely both. Definitely both. You don't, at the end of the day, the song is the only thing that matters. And I think a lot of people coming up in Ableton and Logic and FL and, and Pro, just a lot of new producers, you forget that the only thing people really care about is the song. Always. And the production's always there to support it. And that's just something that I had to, I had to learn over a lot of years. And something that's, I think once I learned it and once I really understood that no one cares about the sound that's 40 dB down that you made with a guitar that you reamped and pitched up six up and then pitched down and then mic'd it up out of a pool garage. And you know what I mean? Like, no one cares. I, I care and I like that stuff a lot sometimes and I do it. But at the end of the day, you always got to focus on the song. I mean, that's the whole point of this podcast is that, and I say it all the time. They're like, I'm a, I'm a fan. I actually listen to music when I, when I, uh, when I want to listen to something, but I, I, as a writer, I don't care about music. I only care about songs. Yeah. Like, like there's a huge difference between music and songs. And like, I listen to Sigur Rose or I listen to, you know, uh, whatever it is, I'll listen to music when I listen to mu- When I want to listen to sound, re- purposefully recorded sound, I'll listen to music. Because if I listen to songs, I find it distracting. But when I write, I don't care at all about the music. I only care about the song. I wouldn't say I don't care about the music. I spend. This is what I'll say too. When I'm making music, everything in the room writing the song is about the song. I don't care about the production at all, at all. Like if again. I'm sure everyone's heard this a million times, but if a great song is a great song, it can be on any instrument in any arrangement. Like, it's simple. So, anytime I'm writing a song, that's all I care about. That being said, after that, if I get a great song and something that I really love, I'll go to the ends of the earth to make the music amazing and and something that supports it in the best way. Like, I'll spend six months every single day just getting it right. So, not I definitely don't not care about it, but I would never. I would never spend that six months on a song that I didn't think was great. Song first. When you were, this is, let's go to a little bit of your, you know, it's, uh, a sh- your life is actually pretty short before you start working in a way with intention of being a professional musician. Like you start interning seven years ago when you're 17 years old. And you start working with Benny. One, how did you get that gig? And you know, previous to that, were you like already producing out people in high school and stuff? Uh, yeah, I was. I was. I I got it because I was Benny's biggest fan, and I I knew that I wanted to learn from someone. I wanted to do some sort of internship. And I, one day I was on my friend's mom's Instagram, just when you find yourself in a three-hour Instagram hole and then you end up on some place where you don't know how you could possibly get there. I was on my friend's mom's Instagram. And like two years back, she had posted a picture 
and he was in the background. And I was like, holy shit, she knows Benny Blanco. So I just asked my friend to ask his mom, can you please see if he needs an intern, see if he needs anyone, I'll do anything. Obviously, I'll work for free, whatever he needs. She hit him up. He never responded. She hit him up again. Like It took a few times, and finally he was like, okay, I'm in L.A. right now. Why don't you have him come by the studio? I went by the studio after school one day, and he said, have you seen every video of me? He did the whole thing, and, and we, had, we just had talked kind of for an hour, and he asked me what I loved and what I didn't love and what I loved about his music and what I loved about music. And I had a really good conversation, and then he said, I'm going to be in New York all summer, but you're going to be in L.A. I'm about to build a studio here. Why don't you help my engineer build the studio? this summer, and then when I get to L.A. next year, you can work with me. So that's what I did. Crazy. Was that, was that Chris? Who was the engineer was that was building yep, the studio? It was Chris. So me and Chris built the studio for three months. Never even, was never in the studio, never saw Benny. I would talk to him sometimes. And then finally, then I think the next November he came, and, and then I got to sit in the studio and be around him and be around all the artists, and it, it was the best thing ever. It was the best dream that could have possibly happened. Nice. Shout out to Chris. Um, when yeah. the your friend's mom, um, who happens to know Benny, was she also in the music business? She's in the music business and she played poker with him. <laughs> so I, I get the feeling that um you were surrounded with people in the music. Like when when I was fifteen, I read a book about the music business, but I didn't know anybody in it. Were you already friends with people in the business, or it just happened that your friend's mom was in the I, business? I think that was the only that. person actually that I knew in music. When, that was the only person. You, I, I had my my uncle had a label under Atlantic for like two years, twenty years ago, and then quit. And otherwise. That was the only person I really knew in in music. I, I had been around people for sure. I, I wouldn't say I, I grew up not knowing anything about the music business. And honestly, I grew up knowing a good amount because of just watching videos too. Yeah, that's a big that the access to information now, if you want it, even if you're in LA or not LA, but the access is to learn is is everywhere. It's honestly unbelievable because you because really the only way that you can you can do I th- people can like achieve their wildest dreams or whatever is like y- there are certain things that you got to understand and certain things that you just have to know and and before y- you wouldn't know that unless you knew people and now everything is online. I still watch people's Twitch streams, producers' Twitch streams to learn, like, all the time. Like, that's how I fall asleep, is, like, I'll watch, like, Ian Kirkpatrick or, like, Disclosure's stream. I love it. It's so much fun to me, and there's, you can literally never stop learning. But the, the access now that kids have to, to learn from these people is just incredible. Yeah, uh, shout-out to Ian, too, man. Shout I mean, to like, Shout-out shout Nick Mira. Nick Mira's screams are insane. Yeah, these people who are sharing information, um, you know, they don't have to do that. Uh, I know a lot of you know, like they're making some money off of it, but all things considered, like it's there's a generation of people who could just sort of ride off into the sunset and not share that information. But 
uh, I, I just always appreciate people who do that. I always appreciate it, and I don't think I don't think you lose anything by by doing it. I don't think you lose any like there's there doesn't need to be secrets. Like I, someone said something great that like the music business isn't a basketball team. It's not like there's a set amount of spots. Like yeah, you're fighting for singles, but everyone has a shot at at making a big song. And just because someone else has a big song, it doesn't mean that you don't have one. You know what I mean? Has, you don't even have the opportunity. So I, I, I like being competitive because it makes me work harder and it's just fun for me in a friendly way. But I, I don't believe in, in sharing secrets. I, I think anything, and also anything I've ever learned from someone, I genuinely appreciate what I learned and, and I always try to pay it back if I can. There was a uh, writing camp that I did with Benny and, and a crew, and I remember somebody saying, um, you know, it's like, well, yeah, it's, it's just a lottery. It's just a lottery ticket, you know, when you finish a song. And, and, and one of the other guys at the writing camp said, well, it's a rigged lottery. And I thought that, that was really interesting. I don't think it's meant in necessarily like a, a mafia sort of way, but... There are 40 slots, at least as radio's concerned. So you can rig it as like you might be able to negotiate to make sure you have a single or you might be able to do certain things to get in the room. But in the end, like mood should not have been, and we'll get there, but mood should not have had a, one of those 40 slots. Like on, on paper, going into that session, there's no way anybody's like this is the session that's going to get you that smash. You're you're going to go into that session and be like uh I'm going to try to steal the slot on this album. And that's something that that's kind of like the fair game and that's where it's a little rigged. But the idea of stealing one of the radio slots especially for this generation is just not realistic. It's just not realistic at all and also no, no plugin is gonna make get you that spot. No drum sound is gonna get you that spot ever. Again, it's always song first. So those things are really helpful to to making your music sound better. And sometimes they can make the song better in from a production standpoint. But those kinds of secrets aren't aren't something that can really, really, truly make or break your song. But yeah, you're right. And that's what I love about music right now is that we had. We had, had never had hits before, pretty much. I, Omer and Golden had had City of Angels, which did really, really well on Spotify and TikTok, but no real hits. None of We're all in this room making music. We had just as much of a chance of making a hit that day as all of my heroes, as you, as Max, as any one of these people. We had just as much of a chance to make a hit, and and we did. And we weren't in a fancy studio. We weren't the session wasn't set up by an A&R who was bribing us with it. You know what I mean? Like it could have been anyone. And now I'm lucky enough and fortunate enough to be, to work with artists that are, that are a lot bigger and, and songwriters that I've always looked up to. And I still don't feel like when we get in the room, we have any more of a chance of making a hit song or a great song than some kid in Wisconsin, you know, like it, we really we all have an equal an equal chance. I mean, and this isn't about Benny, but uh, the other 
one of the other things that he said was like when I I asked him, I think the assumption is that it's easier for you once you have hits. And his response is no, it's harder because the expectation begins to get higher. So when you send in a song, if it doesn't compete with other songs that you've done before, that's a hit. Then people then people are like, well, you know, this is no, you know, this is no stay, this is no mood. And you're like, no, 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 this is different. This is better, or this is different. Not better, but it's different. But they might, they start to have this expectation. Of, yeah, but we really were hoping that you just give us that song. Yeah. And, 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 and like, it never gets easier. I always think that it'll get easier. I always think like, oh my god, maybe this time we're not going to have to spend five months getting everything right and reproducing it six times and doing all these things. And it, it literally never gets easier to make something that that's great, or at least that I think is great. And, but I love that. I, I actually love that so much. I think it's such a great challenge. I think it it makes it exciting. No one would want to live in a world where only five people are allowed to make great songs. You know what I mean? Look at Gail. Congratulations to Gail, by the way. Shout out Gail. You're amazing. I've never talked to you. But that ABCDEFU is the biggest one of the biggest hits of the year so far. Did anyone was anyone pouring a four hundred thousand dollar marketing budget into that originally? Was anyone paying five grand for Conway every day for her to go in and to make that? No, not at all. And she made something truly great, and now it's it's doing what it deserves to do. You have a the, the thing that you did from the beginning, at least that I can see from the notes that I have, is that you when you went you went to NYU when you were. You know, probably eighteen, I would assume nineteen, and you started doing exactly what you were talking about, which is you started working with your peers. You found people who were creative, you know, artists or singers, and you just started producing them or writing for them because you had the skill set to do it. You weren't there was no A and R person. Who was probably hitting you up while you were at NYU? You had experience. You were you had interned. You had done some other stuff. You'd been in studios, but that's totally different. You know, in reality, like most of the people who listen to this podcast who who don't have hits could find a singer, and if you create good enough music, you know, or or you find ambitious enough singers, you know. Then maybe you can have like you can actually make a dent in the business without it oh, yeah. without there ever being a four hundred thousand dollar budget per song. I'm maybe I'm different than most people, but at least everyone who I make music with is the same. I hate making music alone. I hate it. Really? I like the the fun of it for me is being with my friends and being. I always feel like I'm the least talented person in the room and I always feel like I'm just watching these people and I'm like, holy shit, I can't believe they let me in here. And everything I say is like, oh, like, what if we did this? You know what I mean? Like, I, that's the fun of it to me. There's, there's an energy in the room and, and feeding off of someone else's energy and feeding off of what someone else is going through and just that whole process is, is my favorite way to make music. And, and I, I think it has always made me better. And I think if you're around greatness, you get great. I think if you're not around greatness and and you're just getting better and you're starting out. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I, I really think working with other people can always make you better. Always. I've never been a part of a song where I could look back and be like, oh yeah, I could have done that myself. Never. And and I don't think any of the people who I made the songs with would say that either. None of them would say, oh, we, I could have done that song without that person. And and that's the beauty of it. That's like back to my mom's house in this studio that I'm sitting in, like stay happened not because of a planned session, not because of anything. We were It was literally just my friends hanging out in this room. Leroy texted us saying, what are you doing? I'm going to come over. It came over and 10 minutes later, stay was done. Like that's so much fun to me. I never would have sat in a room and just played ba 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 ba. I never would have sang those lyrics. I never would have sang those melodies without. Just none of it would have happened without other people. Did you write the? I mean, not to. We'll we'll, we'll skip to this and then we can revisit when we get there. But did you write? Who did what in that room? So Charlie, Charlie came in, or Leroy came in. Charlie just sat down at the Juno and started playing just that riff exactly as you hear it on the record. We did not change anything. And that was the take, too. It was the first time he ever sat down to play it. That's the one we used. And then Leroy said, oh, I think I hear something for this. Got on and basically in one take, maybe it was two, wrote the entire song. And and we went back and we edited certain things and we we changed little things, but... It was it was completely insane. It was like a moment that I I will never forget ever. Leroy is like really one of the most talented people I've ever met in my entire life. Just imagine like imagine being in the room and watching someone sing that live one take, just being like, oh my god, what is even happening? I was it was I was like out of my body. I mean, the amazing how much I, I don't know what the edits were, but there's there's something about that. Um, in- improvisation that where somebody stands in front of a mic and the first thing they hear why it's so important to keep that mic rolling because so many good ideas come before you have an opportunity to think about the songwriting I think the best ideas come before you have an opportunity to think about it and then the edit the editing makes it great yeah but the but the you can have great improvisation that can stand the test of time that's all of Miles Davis, 
but you can also have like that editing is what makes that that hook. I wasn't uh, totally, and, and they both go hand in hand. I think you need the magic, and then you need the tools to edit it to to really complete it. But I wasn't in the room when Mood was made originally. The the at least the start of it. I wasn't in the room when Golden and Ian laid down most of their parts. But Omer just started playing the guitar. BZ just made the beat, and in first thing that came out of Golden's mouth was, why are you always in a mood? And the whole thing was done in like 10 minutes. It's the exact same thing. It was just a magic night. And then Ian came in, laid down his verse, and it was, it was like, it was almost done. Just in, in a magic moment like that. And I feel like I work every day just waiting for the magic moment to happen. And sometimes it doesn't happen. That's, that's also what makes me feel better about when I walk out of the room without something that I that I love and that's great is that the energy just wasn't right maybe or the magic moment didn't come and and that's all good it's not our fault yeah and also you know i i also think it's important to revisit some ideas that there's if, if you wrote a great pre-chorus today it's okay to maybe just keep that and maybe that maybe the next day you're like, hey, this one part was great, and you re, you know maybe you do different chords around it or I've something had, else. I'm working but- on a song right now that we had one of those magic moments for the hook, and we had verses and pre's, and they sucked. And then we did two more sessions, and then on the third session, someone was like, holy fuck, and we got the verses and the pre's. You know what I mean? So like sometimes it takes a few, but but I think it all normally for me it happens like that. If these songs are, you know, I've I've tried to explain this to, to a few people where if, if a hit song, let's say a a hip hop song grosses a a, a million dollars, maybe ten million dollars, depending what it is, but just for math, let's say it's a million dollars, right? I really and hope you, my stomach groans are being picked up on mic, by the way. Like that, the yeah. idea of someone in their car hearing my stomach go like is my favorite thing ever. Okay, sorry, continue. Uh, I'll, I'll, we'll talk about some of the other podcasts we've done where there are some weird sounds if you listen in the if background. If I have to fart, I'll fart. Dude, I won't hold it. Weirder things have happened. Okay, perfect. Keep going. But the idea that, like, if a, if a pre chorus is, if a song is three minutes long and a pre chorus really ends up taking 20 seconds three times, so you end up with a minute of the three minutes of pre-chorus or whatever it is. That means that pre-chorus is actually worth $333,000. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. I, I think a lot of times you, people think that you need to have all the parts, but if that one line, if the title of the, cor- of the song is amazing, but everything else sucks... Man, that title's worth a shitload of money. If it, if if you're thinking of it as creating assets, I, I know that's, that's like I've never thought about it like that. It's that's not cool. it's not sexy, but a great verse is totally worth going back in three, four, five times. If you if, if great, you can, nail I think it. a great everything is worth. I'll, I will, I'll kill myself to to get every part of a song. Exactly how I hear it in my head, and exactly how it needs to sound. I think every single part matters. We spent probably three months on the five-second bridge breakdown of "Stay," of may- maybe ten different versions of it, 
until we thought we got it right. Like every every moment of a song to me matters. Yeah. When you going back to your first artist that you start working with, where we start finding out, um, where people start looking at your work, you started working with Gracie Abrams and Omar Apollo while you were at NYU. Uh, I assume that they were both students at NYU. No, they were know. neither was. Or neither of them were. Omar was not, and Gracie eventually went to Barnard. How did they meet you? Because those both were like super buzz, became really buzzworthy after yeah, you yeah. got involved with them. Omar, Omar, I met through my then manager, and we just started. He had had some success on. Spotify and was just starting to get in the studio. He hadn't really been in the studio, and I hadn't really been in the studio with, with an artist either. And I was living in an apartment on Avenue C, and he would just come over. And I think a few of the first songs we made, he had already written, and we just we I produced them and we made like little edits here and there, and then we started writing together. And yeah, you know, Omar's Omar's incredible. He's amazing. It's been it's been. Amazing to see what he's done now. He's he's playing Terminal Five this tour. Like he's really, it's it's awesome. And Gracie's my girlfriend. With Gracie, I was Gracie and I would send music to each other when we were just friends and just talking. But we definitely always had crushes on each other. And we started dating, and it kind of just made sense to to make music together. And it, it's a crazy process. It's it's been one of the most rewarding, meaningful, emotional music processes I've ever been a part of. Of course, you know these songs are a lot of these songs are about us, and a lot of these songs she wrote when I wasn't with her about us and about me. And then we work on them, to get them together. Like I've I've had to work on our songs when we're when we're broken up and I hear her voice in my headphones for six hours in a day and I, it's just, it's crazy. But I, I could not be more proud of the music that I've made with Gracie. And, and I couldn't be a bigger fan of her music, even just separating myself from it. And I couldn't be like all the stuff that she makes with other people I love. I, I just think she's, I think she's unbelievable. I think she's one of the most talented, one of the most influential artists that's come in a long time. Is it hard to separate when you know a lyric is about you guys, is it? Does it bring up emotions, or are you totally able to separate? Oh, oh of course! How could it not? There's there's a lot of songs that she we would we'd be going through issues or going through through rough patches, and we have, would have not talked about them. And there's a lot of songs that she played me that. It's just about what we what we haven't really talked about that we've both broken down crying or that that provoked the the conversations. Yeah, of course it's hard. I, I I could never say that it's like oh you know I just separated and I just pretend like it's super. It's it hits it hits sometimes and I think it's always been worth it. I there was one moment where I mean actually several moments now where girls have come up to me or guys too and said. You know that that music you and Gracie make really helped me through a breakup. Or I cry to Gracie's music every night, and I always feel better after. Or just anything like that. And I think when I realize that the music means 
that to other people almost as much as it means to me, it made everything. It just makes it worth it. Like I'm, I'm always down to to make it really hard on myself, and and she is too. If if we can make something like what we've made to make people feel. Was there ever a time where you felt like it kind of crossed the line and said too much? Maybe in the moment, yeah. But but looking back, anything that was was too hard and that said too much was something that we probably should have talked about before. So I would say that. Was there a time where either her family or your family looked at, listened to the music and felt like um, where you, it was hard to share it with your family or her family? Uh, there's a lyric about my mom in one of my in one of my favorite Gracie songs that I didn't do called Twenty One that I love that song and and when my mom heard it she definitely started I think my mom heard it after we had gotten back together when we were broken up the first time so it was she kind of got to laugh at it but but no I mean it's definitely it's gotten to that point for sure you left school after a couple of years are you okay having never graduated college I'm okay having never graduated college I would love to go back at some point and even if I never got my degree just take classes cuz I loved it but I needed to to get out and start working in LA. Yeah, me. it's it's you know it's that they I I this is your story not mine, but I always I graduated early, but I always say like nobody asked me what my GPA was. You know, it's like yeah. to me I was like I crammed in as many classes as I possibly could because I had a I had a, a I was working in the music business. I wanted to get out. And I was either I drop out or I finish, and I just finished just about a skin of my teeth as far as grades yeah. grades are concerned. But you know, it was one or the other, and and like, you know, it's sort of unnecessary. It's more just, you know, I just was curious, having spent two years in school, if if you feel the need to go and finish it. I it's not something that's like on the top of my list, but I was lucky enough to go to college, and that's a crazy blessing that we both got. You know what I mean? So. Would you go for music or would you go and study something else? I wouldn't I would never say anything bad about a music school, but I I just don't know if you need it as much now. I think the best education you can possibly get music-wise is going on YouTube and watching producers make music and and going on YouTube and listening to people in the music industry. That being said, there were some amazing classes at NYU where People who I really respected in the music industry came and talked, and I learned so much. And there were some amazing moments where going to music school, I got studio time, and I got to meet people and who were in my class who I thought were really talented and learned how to collaborate that way. So I think that was really important, but I don't think that if you don't get to go to music school, it means anything about how your career is going to go. The first real single that you have... Um, is a Kevin Gates record. I, I guess not first real single, the first like gold record at least that I can find. Yeah, that's crazy. I I didn't even think about it like that. That is my first gold record. What, what the what the fuck is that? Like, how does that uh, happen? That's hilarious. That I haven't thought about that song in so long. I I moved to L. I mean, this is a great chance to shout out my manager Lilia, who I love more than anything in my. In anything, uh, I moved to LA, signed a publishing deal, 
And my now manager, Lilia, was setting up sessions for me every day. And I was just working with anyone who I could work with. And there was this amazing writer who's still amazing and has gone on to have really, really fucking big records named Derek Milano. And Derek Milano came over to my house and I had made that beat with Day Trip uh, a while back and he just one take that hook and then Kevin Gates ended up cutting it. And that was my first goals record. That's hilarious. I love that. It's so random how these things happen. And I think beats are going to be really complicated in the future because they're becoming more and more um, automated. And there's a lot of technology around where beats are going. And this is where the value is what you were saying before. It's really going to be in the songs and how you can create songs and how you can, you know, the idea of sending out beats and having someone cut it and having it be a gold record is going to get harder and harder as beats get commodified. 100%. But that's, I love that to me. I think that's cool. I think beats have gotten, beats and good sounds and good access to drum stuff and all this stuff have gotten easier and easier, but making a great song has not gotten any easier. So I I think you can end up with a lot more songs that sound great sonically, but no more songs that are doing innovative stuff or just as a great song. I think that's cool. Going from being an intern then going to NYU, producing a couple artists, coming back and starting to work with Benny as a peer and signing to his publishing company, did you feel at that point like you'd made it? No, not until I had mood. And and I mean, I still don't think I've made it, like, at all. Like, not even a little bit. But mood was Why? the first time... There's just so much more I want to do. I, there's, I think it's. I've been so lucky to have two years of really big records, but I want to do it for a lot longer than two years. My goal was never, you know, to have a great year. So I'm. I don't know, and and that's what makes it fun too. But I don't think I'll ever think that I made it. But I didn't feel as if I had really got there. Until maybe I don't know. Maybe maybe I think without you, there was a moment where without you and mood were number one and number two on some Spotify chart, and I was like, oh, maybe maybe I I've kind of like done what I've always wanted to do, or maybe I'm doing it, not done. Maybe I'm doing it. Now. I think that's the um, the difference between an aspiring writer and a writer who's who's now a real pro, is somebody who can finally recognize that they're doing it. Because it's a process and you never get there. That there keeps moving and moving and moving and moving and moving. So there's a moment I feel like for most writers when they can say, oh, I'm doing it. You know, And the hard part is like... That's what it was for me. But you were doing it when was yours? When were you like, okay, I, maybe I'm I'm doing this finally? Um, I think when I could go, I was I moved into an apartment where I like I had a few phases because I was like an artist for a while and I had gotten record deals, but it was so up and down. Being an artist is terrible, but 
once I was a, a writer and I could, I went from like, I don't, I don't, I couldn't pay my bills to like going to an apartment and being like, I'm going to pay this whole year up front if you don't check my credit score. And they were like, wow. and they were like, okay, okay, sure. You know, and, and it was because I had struggled to get to that point. And I did it because of songwriting. That's when I was like, I, cause I had already experienced like getting record deals, publishing deals. But when I could just be like, here's a year up front, then all the hits and all the other songs and all the career stuff that I'm, that maybe I, I became kind of known for all happened well after that. So all of that felt like gravy. Like all of it was it. like that. Just felt like it was just like icing. Yeah, on the it was. Like, I could pay because if the goal is to pay your bills as a musician, and then once you can pay your bills from it, I don't know. I don't know what the next. Like I think I think I, I've moved a lot of the goalposts, and I have a lot of objectives. But yeah, that mean? Yeah, I think for me the goalposts is always going to be moving and always going to be there are always going to be goals that I want and I'm going to achieve them and I'm going to go to the next thing but at the end of the day I can't believe I get paid to do this I can't believe I get to pay to sit in a room with my favorite artists that I was fans of before I met them or people whose songs I've I used to cover in middle school and incredible writers and producers like every time I watch Omer play guitar I can't even believe I'm. It's happening every time I watch Leroy write in the room. I can't even believe I'm getting to watch that. Like getting paid to do that is just so beyond my wildest dreams that I think that's just that's the goal, and that's always been the goal. And everything else may become secondary to that, but just getting to do that, you've that's that's making. It. Yeah, and I think when you say like getting paid to be in the room, the reality is like you're. Pro- I mean, maybe you're getting paid to go in the room, but mo- most you're most of the time you're no, getting you're no, not no, you're not, not really paid getting paid. The room, but you but, know what I mean. But m- the point of that that's interesting is like it isn't even about the money part because you're not getting paid yeah. to be in the room. Yeah. It's literally about being like I'm ha- I'm happy taking the risk today because of how amazing the people are that I'm around that I'm willing to risk. Not getting paid today because this is so incredible that yeah. I will go and and fight through this. Because if you went, if you spent the next ten years working with Omer and Leroy, and you never had another hit with either of them, you still would be like, I can't believe I can go in the room you're, with Omer and Leroy. You're a hundred percent right. You're a hundred percent right. Well, it's ne- it's that's fine. I didn't even think about it that way because I I never think about it. Money wise, like that. Yeah, you can't because you have no idea what today's worth as far as like the money's concerned. So it's like, you know, once you've, once you've, once you can sustain a long time of being in the room without, you know, with the potential of not getting paid again, you know, that's the, that's the fortunate part. But, um, let's talk about, um, you know, obviously something really changes. You go from, you know, Kevin Gates aside, you go from Omar and Gracie to like this string that you're talking about. 
Um, how do you go from I've got four credits to the essentially the biggest, you know, Juice World and Leroy and uh, you know you're working with Omer and all this stuff. Just explain like how fast that happened and why why that happened. Everything happened really fast, but it was all I think just like packing on the snowball and packing on and packing on, and eventually it just has to roll down the hill type thing. And like the Juice World beat was was a beat I had made two years before, and the. A lot of these songs happened. We wrote them before we really had big songs. I think everything just kind of started happening. I, when I met Omer and Golden and BZ for the first time, that's when things really kind of clicked. And, and I was looking for my whole music career for people like them that I really connected with and, and we are both equally as passionate about music and we've seen every interview and we love music just as much as the next person but we both have different skills that complement each other and I do a different thing than they do and they do a different thing than me and I can't make what they do ever if I even tried and, and you know what I mean so when we all connected I think we that was just a crazy cosm in the it was like a little it was a sonic boom for me like that happened it was like okay we're off to the races me, we made mood. Then I met Leroy with all of them, and then me and Omer and Billy Walsh worked on "Without You" with Leroy. And then "Without You" became a huge song. And then we were like, "Holy shit, what's happening? We have two songs." And then we were like, "Okay, let's make more." And then "Stay" happened. And then we met Nas. And then Nas had like, obviously, there there's so much under all of that, and so many little things that had to happen, and so many people that it never would have happened without. But Kind of just in right as COVID hit was when I met I met all of them the week before everything shut down. Everything shut down. I took like two weeks like not seeing everyone, and then I was like, "Fuck this! I gotta I gotta work." So I I started living in my studio, and I wouldn't see anyone except for them, and we would just make music every day, and got better and better and better, and and learned more about how to push each other, and. Just great music started happening. Most people um, who've had a string of hits have this experience where you almost can't go out in public without hearing one of these songs. Um, describe the first time you actually heard one of these songs in public. I heard, I think the first time ever was hearing the Juice World song. I heard two girls like singing it out of their car and I was so excited. I got like the feeling that you get when you're on a roller coaster when your stomach fully drops and I wanted to run up and be like, I, I was a part of that. I did that. I'm, that's my guitar, blah, blah, blah. And after that, I think I heard Mood on the radio and I freaked out and like stopped the car and turned it up all the way. Uh, and yeah, just from there, just I, I've heard it at, at parties here is always really fun. I've heard mood and stay on like one on ninety seven one, one on one no two point seven. You switch over and you're just like, holy shit, what the fuck is happening? All of those moments, they never really get old. Hearing it on the radio really never gets old for me. I always get excited 
because you you're just listening to a song that another song on the radio that you love and then another one comes on and it's you and you're just like what the fuck it's not even me it doesn't even feel like i made him i got coffee yesterday and i walked up and a song of mine was playing and i it's this weird thing where i know it's like kind of cheesy but i was like um i wrote this song i was the only one in the coffee shop and there and there was two baristas, or, and they were like, "What?" I was like, "Yeah, I wrote, I wrote this song. It's so weird. I haven't heard this song in so long." And they were like, "So weird." I think like it's what just like a say, weird. What did they say to it? They were like, "That's." I think one of them was like, "That's really fucking cool." <laughs> it is. And it's the, so cool. And the it's, and the other one awesome. rang me up. Like, and then I I took the coffee and I left the the room and it was like I think that's you know those moments of like oh that's right this is sort of like a part of this is it, when it becomes part of the the life it becomes part of the soundtrack it's like that's such a it's such a weird moment the worst is when I've had it like at least a few times where I've said that like same situation you're the only one in a coffee shop like you're small talking anyway and your song's on you're like I wrote this and several times it's been like oh cool and then just keep going and you're like ah okay yeah no one cares about me I forgot still a loser not a big deal man if if you're the artist you know nobody like nobody you know I Nobody knows who who these people are in public except for the people who follow them. And there's so many there's so much information being consumed with such little attention right now that right. nobody's paying attention to anybody else. Like literally nobody cares about what anyone else is doing or achieving except for you and your maybe your family at most like but which is cool. I like. Of that. course, man. That's I like. like that. I'm a fucking loser. No one needs to pay attention. Like, you know what I mean. I I love paying attention to the people that I love, and I have the most fun. I have the most fun paying in, like Instagramming every producer and and looking in the corner of their story and seeing like, oh my god, that's the piece of gear that they use. Like, holy shit, I'm gonna like, oh, what's this thing? Like, I have the most fun doing that. Obviously. Of course, the, the general public is not going to do that, and that's not how it should be. All the people who I work with, I, I'm always in such awe of every artist that I work with because they're fucking, they all deserve to be where they are. And they all are such, like, they're stars in the room. They're, you know, they're, they're in the room, and you just want to hear everything they have to say, and they're making everyone laugh, and they're, they were just born to do it. And I, I have utmost respect for that. Um, I just want to talk about Montero for a second before we, you know, because I know we've already been on for a minute, but Montero, um, Montero uh, feels like a like that. That's like an album that really feels like a cultural change, differently than Leroy and and you know. The mood record, like Montero, really, like the whole thing is um, brings up bigger cultural issues and bigger conversations. Did you feel like it was doing that while you were writing it? Yes, and I, I think while we were working on that's what I want, I was definitely. I think all of us were pretty aware, like, wow, this is a 
it's a love song from Nas. And it's a very, it's very clear that it's a love song. So that, that's a really cool thing. I think not really until Montero came out, the song came out and I was like, holy shit, this is just what this dude is doing for culture and for kids is, is so monumental for in every way. So that came out while we were working on it. And I just thought I was just the biggest fan of the song and the music video and everything. I've always been Nas's biggest fan. I think he's one of the most talented people in music right now. When he first showed us the music video and we didn't see, he wouldn't let us see it until the night it came out. We all watched it together on the night the album came out. That I think was when I was like, holy shit. Yeah. This is really a moment in, in culture. Like that music video is is amazing and it's brave and it's groundbreaking and it's everything as a producer I want to be a part of is is moments like that so that was super meaningful because that takes a lot of bravery and a lot of guts and and for him to do that for for him and for kids all around the world I think is will for sure be in the history books somewhere. So just to play any part in that, even the smallest part, is is just special. I just feel lucky to have been a part of it. All right, we're going to go to our next segment, which is five for five. I'm going to list five things. You tell me the first thing that comes off the top of your head. Okay. Let's start with Lil Nas X. Groundbreaking. Let's go with Leroy. Also groundbreaking, but awe-inspiring, too. Let's go with KBZ. The funniest person I've ever been around in my life. Really? If anyone who ever gets the chance to spend time with KBZ, your life will be so much better because of it. Do you call him KBZ? Oh, yeah, yeah, BZ is his name. Omer Fetty. Groundbreaking, awe-inspiring. I, I don't have enough good things to say, but like, it's. I take it for granted getting to see him make music with me every day, almost, or even just when we do make music. It's really unfucking believable watching him play his instrument and watching him listen to music and his his take on music, and it, it's just amazing. He is so the real deal. So yeah. You're you're a really good guitarist, and you know it's like I, you know, I work with Jared Sharf a lot. There are all these like great guitarists, um, uh, and and you know only a few of you guys who are like at at a certain level of being able to make guitar into like loops and into hit songs. Yeah, yeah. What do you think it is that he brings to the table that's unique? Amongst all these, you know, some of these great guitarists, uh, restraint, I would say, restraint, and and again, always the, you're always looking out for the song first. You're always going for the song, not for the, the cool riff or the impressive solo or anything. Like I don't think he's ever even played a guitar solo on anything. Like it's so not about that for him. So I think I think that's what sets them apart. All these people, I'm always amazed by people like Puth is the same way. Puth is one of the best jazz pianists I've ever met in my entire life. 
he's not making jazz records. You know, what I mean, his his riffs and his main chords are maybe he'll sneak something cool in there sometimes, but it's always it's simple. He's always going for simple, but great simple is the hardest thing to do. Yeah, tasteful always. for sure. Oh, yeah, always, always. Sure. Great simple is the hardest. It's it's really an art, and I think when you start making music, you realize that because you listen to pop music, not understanding that, and then think, oh, okay, I can do this, and then you go to set to sit down and do it, and then you're in for a world of just a whole new world. Benny Blanco, mm, my brother, my my big brother. That's I, that man means a lot to me. All right, this is sick, so don't fault me, but. Um, <laughs> Gracie okay. Abrams. The love of my life couldn't mean more to me, will always mean the most to me. And and also all of those things that like she she puts me in such awe every time I watch her write a song or listen to a song that she's written. Like every time I watch her perform, I'm so impressed, not even as her boyfriend, just as her biggest fan. So yeah, I'm I'm I don't have you know she's she's a lot to me. Thank you for doing our podcast. I can't Blake. believe I'm on it. I still don't believe that you're gonna put this on your website. I don't think that you're gonna make the little drawing of me. I don't think it's gonna happen. But at the very least I've just had the best time talking to you. So thanks for talking to me. Man, this is gonna be the first time of I imagine many. Like you know the I hope that there are avenues for not just producers talking about how they were successful at the end of their career or while they're being inducted in the Hall of Fame, but it's important to be able to keep keep up with people who are in the in the just still on the rise. Like you had a great year, a great couple years. And that's in quarantine and in COVID. Like, I can't wait till you can hear all your songs in a world where people are able to enjoy them to their fullest. I know. I've, with, I've been with each really other. Looking forward to that. You know, like, on the contrary, like, what you've been able to do that most writers can't is that all the people who've experienced your songs experience them very personally. So they've had a very different experience. These hits really touched a lot of people in their headphone in their headphones at home when they needed like something. Versus it wasn't just out and about. It wasn't just while they were driving for, you know, another thing. It was It wasn't in the grocery store. Yeah, it wasn't necessarily in a grocery store. And yet those you know, like the story you told Joe in, in the beginning, like before we started recording about, it's like you were hoping that Mood would get 100 million streams and you're like, no man, it really affected 10 times plus, you know, that many. Yeah, that many it's still so fucking crazy to think about. Yeah. I don't know how it happened. Well, it happened because you're surrounding yourself with talented people and you're staying humble because you're surrounded by talented people and you're a good person. I'm I'm so honored to have been on this, to even talk to the the man who wrote My House is really one of the, the great <laughs> honors. I'm fully serious. That's my favorite song. I love that song. There you go. That's your podcast, man. Thanks for everyone that listened. 
This episode is produced by Joe London, Hypnosis, Mega House Management, and myself. Shout out Paige McDonald, Kelly Fox, Casey Robinson, David Silberstein, Tim Kirchin, Zach Weinstein. See you all next week. I'm Ross Golan, signing off. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.